0: Hello there listeners, it's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists and thank you for listening to our podcast. This is episode 76 of the Australian Anesthesia podcast and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. In this episode we're taking a little bit of a sideways detour and we're going to be talking about podcasting and there's two reasons why. First of all, I've had a few requests over the years, but particularly lately, on how to make a podcast. So for all the people who've asked me recently, this episode is for you. I'm really keen to support up and coming podcasters. Of course, I think it's a fantastic medium. It's one of the few forms of content that you can access whilst you are doing something else, like driving or doing the dishes or whatever it is. You can't watch a YouTube video or catch up on a webinar when you're doing those things, and you can't be reading a book or a journal article. I'm hoping this helps you while away your time in a really productive manner. Also, I'd love to see more podcasts out there from anaesthetists and pain physicians and so forth, because I think anything that showcases the breadth and depth of talent of Australian anaesthetists and pain physicians is fantastic. And it's great to be sharing our knowledge and expertise with the world. And despite being involved in making a lot of other content for the ASA, I'd actually prefer not to be the one always in front of the camera and the microphone. So I'd love to see other people out there. Anywho, I'll get on to the second reason for this episode at the end of the podcast because I am super excited about introducing our guest today. In this episode, I'm joined by Kate Pentecost, who is one of our ASA staff members. She at the ASA is the curator, librarian and archivist for the Dr. Harry Daily Museum and our library collection. Kate, in her previous roles, happens to be our content producer and has been host and producer of a podcast series called Into the Silent World, which you'll hear us talk about in this podcast. So this is a little bit different from our usual conversational style. Kate and I are bouncing a lot of great ideas off each other about the journey that we undertook in becoming podcasters. Hope you enjoy and let's get into it. So what would we say to someone who's thinking about starting a podcast? Step one,
1: listen to a lot of podcasts. I think everyone has it in them to tell a story. Most people have a voice good enough for podcasts. And, yeah, if you don't listen to your genre, your style, your delivery, you're not going to know if you're doing it properly.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I can't remember if I listened to podcasts before I started making this podcast.
1: So my road to making a podcast was about two years in the making. And I originally had to write up a business case for it and consult with various stakeholders of, would this be possible? What would it look like? Where would the budget come from? Why would we do this? So I had to listen to a range of podcasts from other museums. So at least it was defined market. Yeah. And then that also meant that I listened to podcasts in other things that I liked. But anyway, Yeah. listening to that variety, I made a wonderful spreadsheet that was a few pages long of who has an intro music and an outro and... How do they structure it? Do they tell two stories or one story? Do they have a guest? Do they have a regular host? Do they have different hosts? How much effort do they put into the music and the soundscape? And does that add to it or does it distract to it? I was probably a bit too analytical. And again, I overdid it because I had to talk to a lot of stakeholders. So fast forward a few years, I'm working at the Silent World Foundation with Renee Maliaris, who's a wonderful maritime archaeologist, Yes. And very enthusiastic to get history out there. And we both like listening to podcasts. It was the second lockdown in Sydney and we went, this is
0: our moment. This is the time, yeah.
1: (laughs) This is the time. We have the time to produce this content and that was how we got into it.
0: There's quite a few things in there that I wanted to pick up on and I'll come back to. I honestly can't remember if I listened to other people's podcasts before I started this one. So the idea for the Australian Anesthesia Podcast came when I was vice president and I knew that I'd have to be writing or contributing to the ASA e-news, news news monthly email that comes out to members. And there was just so much news. There was so much stuff that the ASA does. There's meetings with the Department of Health, putting out this guideline, this workshop's coming up. There were so many events. And I thought, you can only put two or three sentences about each item in an e-newsletter. I thought, there's also a lot of nuanced discussion that occurs in committees and at the board table, and I wanted to keep members informed. And I knew that would be more than two or three sentences in an e-newsletter. So I talked to a colleague who was the president of the New Zealand Society at the time, David Kibblewhite, and he had started writing a blog for their members. And I thought, great, I'll write a blog. And I started to sit down and write the blog. And I just, I had writer's blog. And then Paul Singh, our IT guy in the office said, why don't you record a podcast? And I said, oh yeah, that's a good idea. As you just say, yeah, that's a good idea without actually thinking that you're going to take it on. And then he reminded me a few weeks later, And I told him I was a bit nervous about doing a podcast. And he says, just put your phone in front of your mouth, press record and start talking. So I just started recording. Maybe I had consumed a few podcasts, but I hadn't really been absorbed in the genre, which is different to how you came into it. But I think where I see we both had something in common, and this is where I think is a really good and important starting point for people, is to think about what You've got to say, what will your content be?
1: I actually made two little mini test podcasts. I interviewed two colleagues, a curator who had found archives had added to some current research that she was doing. And there was a controversial family letter related to the research that she'd found in the archives that no one knew was there. And it was like, ended up being this really juicy story about divorce and. Affairs and could the widow get the money? But then the family was saying she wasn't a good wife. And the other test podcast that I made was with a conservator talking about how they had looked after these particular delicate fans in the collection. And I edited them the same. They were both only about 15 minutes. And it was just to get that thing of does this translate? What stories are we telling? How does it sound? And when I passed those around to a few trusted colleagues, the feedback that I got was the curator's one was really great because it had a great story, but the conservator's one, they couldn't picture the object mm. that the conservator was talking about. So that was a moment for me to go, okay, we can't tell every story as a podcast. Yeah. And so we would need to prioritise stories that came across better in an auditory fashion, whereas The fans and the conservator would be better as an Instagram story.
0: Yeah, where you can have the images.
1: Yeah. In my role at that time, I was able to go, okay, that's the best way to tell this content.
0: Exactly. I don't know if you get asked, but often I get asked, what microphone should I buy? And it's not about the microphone. It's about... Your content. Your content is king. That's yep. my spot. I listen to podcasts about podcasts and I must have picked it up because I hear it all the time now. Content is king.
1: Yeah, I spend too much time as a lot of new podcasters do trying to get their head around what microphone do I get and do I get a condenser or a USB one or an XLR? And as you say, content matters the most in the end. And I think your enthusiasm and your story and what you're trying to say will carry it a lot more.
0: Exactly. I think in my case, the very first podcast I did was with Mark Sinclair. At the time, he was the chair of the Economics Advisory Committee. And we recorded it after a board or council meeting in the ASA office. And we just recorded it on my laptop. I just opened up Audacity and recorded it as a single track. And the sound quality is actually a bit awful. There's one interruption where Sue Donovan, who people might not know, is the executive assistant Came in just to check that we were okay and that's the only bit of editing that I do is remove that section where she comes in to interrupt (laughs) us. And the content is we're talking about the relative value guide and we're giving tips for people who are new to the relative value guide as to how to use it and what it is. I keep going back and looking at that podcast and thinking maybe we should delete it. We've come a long way in terms of production. But when we look at the stats on the ASA website, people are still going to it and the content is still accurate. It's a good reminder of how far we've come as podcasters. People are still finding it, so I don't want to remove it. And
1: I find when I was asking people when I was getting into podcasts, do you go back and listen to the first episode and then work your way through? And I tend to be a start at the recent and go backwards. So I did notice some shows – had improved their audio quality a lot. And then you get really proud of them because you're like, oh, now they've come. Exactly. You go on the audio journey with them. So I think particularly for early shows, people end up being quite forgiving.
0: And I think that's a really important lesson for people because people can get so caught up on wanting to have perfect audio quality that they lose the value of sharing their content with the world.
1: Yes, and that's something that stopped me for a long time as well. I think Renee and I probably actually could have gone a year earlier because we wanted to put out a really polished product because we're quite a small, very dedicated team at Silent World and we wanted to put out a podcast that, as close as possible, could compete with, say, the Smithsonian Side Door that's
0: co-produced with NPR. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We can't all compete with NPR.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Proper radio producers and proper sound booths and audio engineers
0: yeah it's the great thing about podcasting is you can be your indie podcaster and have your very basic audio set up and go around making content for not that much cost and you don't need to be a professional audio engineer and producer and so forth that's the other thing when people are looking to start a podcast the two places I start is what are you going to talk about and who do you think your audience will be And it sounds like you did a lot of work on that at the start as well.
1: I did a lot of work. One of the benefits for you with ASA, you have an inbuilt audience Mm -hmm. who have their own niche and topics of discussion they wanted. At the Maritime where I was first drawing up my first business case, we wanted something broader than your traditional Maritime audience. We wanted people who liked good stories. We wanted people who had an interest in history people who had a crossover with pop culture, because we just wanted to spread the love and the fun. Because maritime history tends to be perceived as very old, very male, yachting, boating. And we were two young women who wanted to open up the stories and be like, isn't this cool? (laughs) Isn't it different?
0: It reminds me three or four months into podcasting, I thought, oh, maybe I should actually learn more. I'm actually just doing what Paul suggested and I'm just sticking my phone in front of my face and pressing record and then just publishing out to the ASA members. And the ASA members were very gracious and saying that they were enjoying the content. And then, of course, the pandemic came in because I was meeting with so many people from the US and Canada and the UK who all had different experiences in terms of the pandemic and in terms of respiratory protection. So it became this really handy way for me to get information out really quickly to ASA members. But then after a while, I thought maybe I should actually try and learn more about this. So I did a podcasting workshop and it was run by Seth Godin who has written a book called This Is Marketing. He talks about your smallest viable audience and making your content and your story and your message for that person or those few people. That if you do big, I want to reach billions of people on YouTube or whatever it is you risk going bland, I suppose, is my takeaway from that. So I can see that even though there's things to say about niche audience and evergreen content, and then it becomes more generalizable. but that I like that I think both of us had a particular audience member or audience in mind.
1: Yeah, I used to call them the armchair archaeologists. And I read a fantastic book as well for my podcasting research that was Why Your Museum
0: Needs a Podcast. I think it's now that every organisation almost needs a podcast. That's what the podcasters are saying.
1: Yeah. And as you say, it's a good way to get things out quickly. Mm. And in COVID times, I think people were quite happy for such a quick pivot and quite forgiving of audio quality or other things because at least there was something to consume.
0: The other big theme that I... Picked up in what you were saying at the start was the need for feedback. I didn't realize it when I went into that podcasting course that I did, but it was great going through this period with people who were at the same stage. So we'd all be doing our lessons together and we'd have each other to feedback and critique each other's work. And there's a lot of work in that workshop about being open and trusting with our feedback and constructive. And for example, when it came to producing the cover art, We'd all have go and, of course, I was really lucky because I was doing it on behalf of the ASA so I could just ask our graphic designer, hey, design the cover art. But then I could feed it back into the group and we'd all provide feedback on each other's cover art. So it was just this fantastic opportunity I really recommend it. But it also sounds like you went through that. You had pilots and you had a small group or a trusted colleagues that you could share your work with and they could give you good constructive feedback.
1: Yeah, I was very lucky at the Maritime, even though I didn't end up producing podcasts there, I did a lot of the groundwork. That meant that by the time I was at Silent World and we're in the middle of the pandemic, I could just jump into it. I had actually joined a Facebook group for um, podcasters and every other week there was a discussion of which cover art should I choose? Here's four mock-ups and just reading through those comments. Every so often, you know, it, it really helped. Yeah, so you need that feedback.
0: Definitely, when you first start creating. And I I think even when you continue, it's good, isn't it?
1: It's really valuable because I want to know that people are getting something out of it and hopefully that something is what I've designed it to be because it was a scripted podcast. By yep. the time I finished editing it, so you do an outline, write the script while you're researching We'd do a dry run through, then we would record it, and then I would edit it. So I would have heard the thing at least six times over, and I'd get to the end and be like, is that joke actually funny? Does that point about that ship that we're making actually make sense? So, yeah, getting audience feedback is really totally invaluable.
0: It's good that you mentioned the Facebook group. The group that I went through, in my podcasting workshop, we're still meeting regularly. And there's heaps of online communities out there for podcasters. So I think it's really valuable to, so many. to join one, one where you feel like you can share your work and where people can give you constructive feedback on it. For me, there were big tips for podcasting was to look at what your content's gonna be, think about who your audience will be, and then try and join some community to help you develop your podcast. Did you have any other big tips that you wanted to throw in there?
1: One of my biggest tips is if you are using music or sound effects, you want to get them with the correct copyright license. You don't want to go through all the effort of adding them and then uploading it and getting a copyright strike.
0: That's true. And there's heaps of free music archives.
1: There is. But as I said to Renee, when we were producing Into the Silent World, I was like, we're going to pay for a good sound library and good music because I have gone through all the free stuff over the years at the Maritime and it hurts my soul a little bit.
0: I was the same with ours. The first thing we did was use free music and then after a while I thought, no, I think an artist should get paid for what they create and give the right auditions and everything as well.
1: Yeah, we did pay for the theme music for Into the Silent World. Renee had contacts for Sydney's number one pirate band and they recorded our theme song because we wanted to know that we could use that music as often as we wanted across all platforms.
0: We kindly asked and he agreed, Dr. Mark Suss, to compose the music for the most recent podcast. So it's great having talented musicians in our membership as well.
1: It is. It pays off, doesn't Mm. it? So sound libraries like Epidemic Sound, Artlisto, there's several out there now. So, yes, just do check your copyrights.
0: And if you're struggling to find them, a lot of people in the podcast community will also know as well. And... What I found in ours was sometimes the copyright laws were different between different countries. So it was really useful to be able to talk to other Australian podcasters, in my case, to find out what they were doing in terms of their music.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing of either you pay a local artist and you know that you've got your copyright or you go with a big sound library that has the correct copyright licence and most of them will be for worldwide distribution now. The other thing I would say is there's lots of really good resources out there But joining things, as we've discussed, Facebook groups, communities, a good little multi-week or multi-month podcast course is probably worth it. Mm. There's a ton of how-to things on YouTube that are probably enough to dip your toe into. Yep. And also two of my favorite resources were NPR has a whole subsection of their website about recording for podcasts.
0: Yeah, they have good tips on voice quality and things like that, don't they? Yeah, basically
1: everything you'd need to record from amateur through to pro, they have it there.
0: Yeah, NPR's a fantastic resource.
1: And Buzzsprout, which is a podcast hosting service, have a fantastic blog that has so many easy to read articles about anything and everything podcasting and they update them regularly. So if you have that question of what microphone do I buy, head straight to their blog and it will give you the super expensive mic and the really cheap mic and the in-between mic.
0: I like podcastage on YouTube. I go to him for all my tech equipment reviews before I buy anything. (laughs) He does great reviews and he's very funny. He does a good podcast too.
2: Oh, cool.
1: Look that up. And the other thing is, which I probably should have done a little bit more of, I ran out of a bit of energy, was actually making sure if you've gone to all the trouble of having fantastic audio and the best mic and the best interviews and fantastic content, actually having time and energy to do the marketing, even if it's just set up a Twitter, set up an Instagram, have the actual little audio clips set to video, ready to go, and just spread the word out there. I found uploading it to the host and actually getting the host to feed out to Spotify and Apple Music and all those places, wherever you listen to your podcast, that was quite easy and inbuilt with our podcast hosts. But the actual marketing
0: Yes, is different. Yes. There's heaps of podcasts on marketing podcasts and doing it for business and remuneration and all that sort of stuff. And I listened to one recently and it said you should be spending at least the same amount of time on marketing as you do on producing your podcast, which I thought yep. was, whoa, you're probably right. And I'm just really lucky we have a established audience. And that's why I have not been focusing so much on the marketing side.
1: <laughs> as you say, you already have ASAs, LinkedIn and Twitter and email list ready to go. I was lucky.
0: All right. Let's do some quick fire questions on that because there'll be some people who are new to podcasting who won't know some of those things that we just talked about. So let's just go through some of the nuts and bolts of what we do. All right. One that you mentioned before was time. How much time do you think it takes to record an episode of your podcast?
1: I think it was a bit time heavy because it wasn't an interview style podcast. It was a narrative Mm -hmm. storytelling one. So I did work out for each page of script would probably take 15 to 20 minutes to record. And then when it's a 40 minute episode, it's taking me two hours to edit.
0: That's pretty good.
1: Thank you. Because there's layers of music, layers of sound effects. yeah, And I was also manually fixing our voices as we went. So I was like a 20 minute podcast means half as much. I think it was an hour post-production.
0: A couple of things I wanted to pick up on there, which was, I suppose we didn't talk about it before, was the types of content. Just for people to think about, there's the narrative, which is that storytelling podcast and those true crime types of podcasts. They're often narrative and they've got great audioscapes, music coming in. That's what you're looking at a narrative format. There's a lot of the ones I do are interview-style podcasts and then there's the solo talking podcast, which is often called Host on Mic. The ratio that we talked about in our workshop group it was four to one for editing. So, oh, four yeah, to one. that's why when you okay. said yeah. that you're <laughs> editing in about two hours, I was like, wow. So, I think it was for one hour of finished podcast, you're looking at about four hours of editing time. And I think when I first started, I think it was about 10 to one, my ratio. <laughs> when yeah, I first started faster. doing it properly, yeah, you <laughs> do definitely get faster. And I think there's the content editing, which mm. you circumnavigate when you script beforehand
1: yeah you kind of swap it yeah because I found when I was scripting when I was researching I'd have extra dot points that I wouldn't get through and I'd be like hang on this is already a five-page script yes by that point I had worked out okay five pages is more than enough
0: that's true yeah you do all the editing when you're writing the script whereas when you're doing the yeah. interview you do all the editing yep. after the interview takes place yep. yeah so take home messages podcasts take longer to produce than you think yes
1: it's not just talking to your phone and then hit publish
0: yeah yeah except for the early versions of Australian. <laughs> <laughs> That's allowed. It is allowed. It's allowed. Anyway, so t- I wanted to ask you, do you do live recordings or remote recordings? And I should explain that for people who don't know. So live recording is when you are recording in the same room together and remote recording is when you're recording over the internet, like over a Zoom call. We
1: did a combination because of lockdown and then we came out of lockdown. Yeah, it was 50-50. I think I preferred the energy of being in person. But part of that could be our dynamic and because it was a narrative podcast. Because we did have a few jokes in the podcast, we found sometimes the remote recording, it was a bit harder to have the energy to say the joke properly to make it land. I would be interested to hear from an audience if they could actually pick which ones were in person and which ones were remote.
0: I listened to a podcast recently and they shared some clips from their podcast. One was recorded live and one was recorded remotely. And you could tell as a listener, the different energy. I don't know whether they picked particular clips where it was particularly exaggerated, but it was interesting. All right. Now the big question that everyone asks, audio equipment. So what are you using to record your podcast?
1: I was using a Rode USB mini mic that they've just brought out on my end. And eventually Renee also got the same mic as well. Mm -hmm. We use the Rode Connect software to record, particularly when we were in person. Yes, So that is USB-based, it feeds it into my computer and then I was in charge of the yep. audio things.
0: So you plug in both USB mics directly into your computer so you needed to have at least two USB ports. Lovely. Yeah. And I like that you called it the audio software. It makes so much sense to call it audio software. I think the technical <laughs> term was the door, the oh, digital really? audio workstation.
2: Oh, like, what God. door
0: are you using? And I'm just like, oh, the front door um, when I come home. Just
1: your audio. <laughs> we did try an online... It's different from Riverside. I can't remember the name of it now. We did test that one from home, but we had too much lag on each side. So that was a bit too hard. And what I liked about Road Connect was when Renee was dialing in remotely via Zoom, I could connect that as a virtual input. Yes. So it acted on the audio software as if she just had a mic connected.
0: Yeah, great, because that's the tricky thing, isn't (laughs) it, for people who are setting up and thinking about how they're going to record. So when you're using a remote recording platform, there's plenty out there you can record on Zoom or on Skype, which most people are familiar with. There's purpose-built ones. As I said, I'm using Riverside. I used to use Squadcast. They can be a bit glitchy at times, like anything. Zoom can also compress the sounds as well. Because it used to be optimized for video, I hear it's getting better for audio. Uh, but then the tricky thing is then when if you want to s- do both styles, remote recording and in-person recording, is then how you get to trick your computer as to all the different inputs. So there's a bit of tech faffing depending on what door, what audio software you're using. Just to fill in my side, I am recording on a Shure SM58. It's the classic microphone that the rock bands use. It's almost indestructible. It was the only thing I could get during the pandemic when I finally realised I should pay attention to audio quality. It's a dynamic mic. You do need to know how to use it. And I think that goes for any microphone. It's an XLR cable, which is the big fat audio cables. So it does need an audio interface to plug into my computer. And I'm using a Scarlett Focusrite 2i2 to do that. And I also do have a preamp to boost it because this is, as I said, designed for rock singers who can Mm -hmm. scream into microphones. So it does (laughs) need a lot of boosting. And with my, I just choose to boost it with a preamp. So that's a bit of tech talk for people who like to (laughs) hear the tech.
1: (laughs) I love the tech talk.
0: And when I've done live recordings, this is not the microphone I take because you have to stick it right in front of your mouth. So I have other alternatives And so what are you using for editing?
1: Ah, for editing. This might hurt the people who are actually sound engineers to hear. But because I'm more of a video editor, I know my way around Premiere Pro better than I do Audacity and Adobe's editing software. I've never really used that. So I just went straight into Premiere Pro. It's a video editing software, but it has the audio tracks that you can layer things on. And so I knew the controls and I could also visually know what I was looking at. So it's a bit unorthodox, but that was also a tip that I got from the producer at the State Library of New South Wales.
0: Yeah. If you know something really well, stick to it. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that tip. I think a lot of people start out on Audacity because it's free and it's really powerful. You do end up looking at all your little waveforms and you start to see little patterns. Sometimes you can see the clicks and so you know where to automatically delete, but it does mean that you are scrolling through screens and screens of waveform.
1: I was going to say you are getting better at your editing when you can pick out the waveform for the person's arm.
0: Yes. Before you hear it. (laughs) Exactly. There's more software now that's available that uses AI to generate transcript and you edit the transcript and that in turn edits the audio waveform. So you're editing like a Word document. Uh, Descript, I think, was the first one. There's AI transcripts on their own. I think Hindenburg, which is another really popular audio editing piece of software, they've also started adding AI transcript, which I think a lot of people who love Hindenburg are just raving about it now. So when I moved editing via transcript, that's what sped my editing process. You have to pay for them, but... If anyone's getting serious about podcasting, I seriously recommend a move to working with transcript.
1: Particularly if you're interviewing. And I was working off a script, so I usually have the script on a second screen. Yes. And the audio waveforms that I was editing in front of me, so I could go between the two, but you would need something like Descript or similar.
0: That's true. If you are host on mic or narrative, then perhaps transcript isn't so relevant and it can be a cost as well.
1: There was a software program that I've used over the years called Otter, mm-hmm. O-T-E-R dot A-I, And that automatically transcribes sounds, so interviews, host on mic. And another way people get around it is uploading the clip to YouTube because YouTube creates the automatic captions. So the same thing happens in your Google Drive. If you upload something, a video to your Google Drive because it uses the YouTube
0: Ah, player. And then you can
1: export the closed captions.
0: That's good. that's good that's yeah. good and then you can go through that and then use that to edit your audio excellent yeah. I think regardless of whether you're using a transcript-based one or not I think it's still really useful to know how to edit audio on its own so getting your head around terms like noise reduction being able to fade things in and out being able to add like a noise floor so you haven't got dead silence those things are really good to know and as I said, Audacity is really powerful for doing that. For considering it's free as well, there's a lot of plugins that you can get that will automatically do it. A lot of people that I know use Orphonic, and Orphonic will do a pretty good general wash without you needing to go through and EQ every bit of sound individually.
1: You could set a noise gate in mm. the road. Connect software oh, yeah. as you were recording, Yes, which was quite handy. It wasn't perfect, but it, it was pretty good. I used Orphonic when I did my little test podcasts at the Maritime yes. and that came out really well. But when I ran these ones for Silent World through it, oh, we sounded like chipmunks.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it can be a little bit brutal on the sound, exactly, if you run your filters too hard. So that's why it's good to know how to tweak them and I'm not going to touch on marketing, but the other one that you mentioned was hosting platforms. So for people who don't know what a hosting platform is, do you want to explain
1: that? So your hosting platform is what you upload your finished audio to. And then that sends that RSS feed, the signal out to Apple Music and Spotify and all the other places, iHeartRadio, that there's a new episode of the podcast. Because where people listen to your podcast doesn't actually host it. So you don't have to upload to six or seven or eight different places. You just upload to the podcast host.
0: When I first went into podcasting, it was only for ASA members. It was just going to be hosted on the website. I was a little bit like, I just want to make this easy and efficient. Mm -hmm. I don't want to muck around with audio equipment. I don't want to buy a microphone. Who else is going to listen to this podcast? (laughs) But how I've changed and also how much easier do the hosting platforms make it now? Oh, super. And so there's heaps around. Which one are you using?
1: We used Podbean. We went with it more for the cost. Yep. And a lot of them are based on bandwidth or the amount that you upload in that month. And the other thing was migrating between podcast hosts because sometimes people need to upgrade their yep. plans or get extra features. And a few of them weren't as compatible yep. with each other.
0: So, who do you guys? I'm on Captivate and I migrated. It was really yep. easy to migrate. And that was one of the reasons I chose the first one that I went with. And then I migrated into Captivate because Captivate lets you host as many podcasts as you want. So, you don't have to keep paying for each new podcast. So, I could ah. have one which is Australian Anesthesia. And then, say, if the Anesthesia and Intensive Care Journal wanted their own podcast, we could easily just host that. Yes. The other
1: reason why I went with Podbean was. I had heard that the stats in the background were a bit better than other podcast hosts. So, if you're someone like me who was looking at which episode performed best, where was our audience, what time of day did people listen to it, that was all actually contained in yeah, in
0: that. That's a really good point, actually. I did notice a drop off in the quality of the stats that I was getting back, but. I don't tend to follow the stats. I think they're the main nuts and bolts, isn't it? They're the main things that people need to get their head around if they're wanting to take their podcasting away from the just recording into your iPhone and publishing it to the next level, which is a nice quality sound. The better quality sound that you can record, the better, really, isn't it? The better. You can't make up for poor quality audio in po- in post. No,
1: it's like filming a good video. The more you can capture in the moment yeah. for what you actually want for your final product, the better everything will be. But again, you're learning, let yourself get better.
0: Yeah, exactly. Good point. So recording, editing, and then publishing and the marketing afterwards. But I think that's a whole other topic. There's so many podcasts on how to market your podcast. Let's just refer people to that.
1: (laughs) I will say one of the things that stopped me from doing the podcast for a while was I didn't want to be the host because I didn't want to listen to my own voice when I was editing it. And I was surprised how quickly I got over that fear. I think by the end of editing the second episode, I was like, yeah, it's not that embarrassing.
0: That's a good point. And I think most people start with that. I certainly did. And that was one of the early exercises that we did in our workshop was just to record yourself. I think everyone finds that moment painful.
1: (laughs) So cringe. And so that's not what my voice sounds like. (laughs) Yeah. You get over it.
0: Exactly. Watch out for that pain point it will come. We've all been there. It's okay. You move through.
1: (laughs) Is there anything else, Kate, that you want to add? Just on that as well, practice talking into your mic, Mm. find the right speed, tempo, volume. I found with Into the Silent World, I think because it was a narrative, I developed a bit of a podcast voice.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Slightly lower register and a slightly slower speed than my normal speaking voice so just just practice and again like getting over listening to yourself you'll get very used to talking into the mic it's really not that scary no exactly. it's actually quite fun
0: yeah 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 you make a really good point it's not about the mic it's about knowing how to use it and I think it's also about being in a good environment for Mm. it which is part of knowing how to use it And with that, you can get a lot out of mics, be they dynamic or condenser mics.
1: Renee and I ended up using the same mic, but we both used it in slightly different ways. I preferred to talk directly into mine and she preferred to talk to hers from the side because she had done a bit of radio and that was what she already had. She used a boom arm for hers. I tended just to put mine on a pile of books.
0: Every mic will make your voice sound a little bit different when you talk to the really high-end audio guys and they talk about finding the right mic for your particular voice. There's a yes. whole rabbit hole like as, you can as, just as go down into when you start looking <laughs> at mics. So.
1: Oh, and I do have a question for you. Do you have uh, your go-to podcast that you always listen to?
0: Oh, my go-to. I'm very fickle when it comes to podcasts. I have different segments. If I'm going through, a, I need to focus on keeping up to date. So a lot of the software gets updated. I don't know if you've heard of Podcast 2.0 software that's come out now for how oh. the metadata is being captured. So when there's been big tech advances, I'll go back and listen to the podcasts on podcasting. Sometimes it's medical podcasts. I suppose I do like the tech gear. And as I mentioned before, I do podcastage for his tech equipment reviews as well as his just general podcasts. What about you?
1: Again, love story-based podcasts. I love listening to Stories of Scotland, which is about Scottish history and folklore. And Side Door from the Smithsonian is really
0: quite good but I think that's been a great intro thank you so much for your time this morning it's been great to just bounce ideas and just I think reflect on the incredible journey both you and I would have been on in getting the podcasts that we each respectively have up and off the ground yay yeah nice all right lovely chatting with you about podcasts this morning thank you so much for your time thank you
1: for having me and I hope this is a great value to the ASA members. And if you do come to the museum, apart from talking to me about the collection and the library books, let's have a chat about podcasts.
0: Excellent. Well, I hope you enjoyed that behind the scenes peek into this podcast, the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, and also learning about the many, many options that go into making a podcast. Thanks, Kate, for sharing your expertise with us. If you want to check out Kate's podcast, and I recommend you do, it's called Into the Silent World. Now, I mentioned at the start that there were two reasons for making this podcast. The first was to support all you budding podcasters out there. The next is, as you heard, quite a bit of time goes into making each episode. I personally prefer to listen to a well-edited podcast, and I know some of you out there do too. Having said that, in my role as Chair of the Communications Committee here at the Australian Society of Anesthetists, I've found myself involved with producing increasingly more content. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then feel free to look at the patient information pamphlets on the ASA website, the ASA YouTube channel, and any of our social media accounts, and of course, the podcasts and videos on the ASA education page. I particularly encourage you to look at the information pamphlets. They're designed for sharing with your patients, surgeons, colleagues, whoever. There's also a feedback link on there. So I do invite you to let us know what you think about them. And before you get too concerned, don't worry. I'm not doing all the writing, editing, graphic designing of all the content myself. We have a great team here pulling this all together at the ASA, and also the fantastic PAC or Professional Issues Advisory Committee, and Economics Advisory Committee, otherwise known as EAC, ensuring that we're delivering accurate and up-to-date information. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And moving forwards, I'm still aiming to bring you an episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast every fortnight, but what I am keen to do is relax a little of the editing, so you might see some longer episodes coming up, perhaps some conversations that will be spread across two episodes, more giggles, more ums. That sort of thing. And hoping through that you're not going to be disheartened by learning a little bit more about me or my guests in the process. Yeah, so keen to hear your thoughts. Do you like the super tight edited podcast? Are you happy to listen to something that's a little bit more relaxed in the editing? Maybe it's too early to tell. Feel free to let us know. If you'd like to find out more about the museum, about Kate or about podcasting, then please feel free to drop into the museum in Chandor Street in Narenburn in Sydney. And if you have an up-and-coming podcast, then I'd love to hear about it podcast at asa.org.au is the best email to contact me on. Of course, I'll put that and links to everything else that I've mentioned in the show notes. Okay, hope you are finding the creative space wherever it happens to be for you. And in the meantime, hope you're staying safe and well out there.
2: Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie Newt with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934 and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work in this podcast we have conversations that seek to inform challenge and inspire you to keep you performing at your best members of the asa can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the asa website at asa.org.au if you are listening on your favorite podcast app then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the asa website also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.